welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Over the last little while, the last couple of weeks and heading into the next couple of weeks, I've been doing a series that really is probably an Advent series, although we've started it a couple of weeks early. And uh, I've called the series The Coming of a Promise. And what I've been doing is considering the Christmas promise, the coming of the Messiah to save his people from their sins, as Matthew one twenty one says, and considering that promise as a template, uh, as a kind of a paradigm of how God makes promises and keeps them to people, to people like you and I. So while the Bible is a great grand story, a promise of God to redeem man and to restore both humanity and creation back to its original intention. If you can imagine that as the outer framework of, of the picture, within that framework of the grand promise are a lot of smaller stories and perhaps smaller promises. And what I'm trying to do in this series is suggest that the larger framework, the larger story and its promises provide a pattern of how God acts in the smaller stories of our lives and in the promises he makes to people like you and I. Because God does that. He makes promises to people like you and I. Now those promises may be related to your family, They may be related to your business, to some aspect or calling of ministry that's on your life. Uh, Perhaps any number of issues where it's his plan, his purpose, and his promise to bless you and to make you fruitful. And what I'm hoping to do in this series is perhaps uh, lift your expectations, renew your hopes concerning those things that God has spoken to you. So in part one, we kind of introduced it, we looked at that great promise, the the framework promise, talked about the fact that God, when he makes promises, keeps them because he cannot lie. He's faithful, he's unchangeable, he's capable, he's powerful. And then in part two, last week, we looked at the kinds of people that God makes promises to. We looked at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one and then honed in on Mary in particular and made the point that God promises things to incredibly ordinary people. We mustn't let the nostalgia, the beauty, and sometimes even the tradition of the season make Mary, for example, into something that clearly she was not. She was just a very ordinary person. She wasn't particularly bright. She wasn't particularly beautiful. She certainly wasn't wealthy. She wasn't a person that you would naturally pick out of the crowd and say, that one. She was just an ordinary person. In fact, she said of herself that she was very lowly of low degree. Not only that, but we saw as we looked at the genealogy that God makes promises to flawed to the bone type people, to Abraham the liar, to Jacob the manipulator, to David the adulterer, to Solomon the womanizer, to Manasseh who was all of those things plus more. God makes promises to people like you and I, flawed to the bone type people. In this message, I want to consider the pathway that a promise uh, takes. Now, in saying that, I'm not suggesting that every single promise that God makes to people has a cookie-cutter sameness about them or that he just churns out chocolate soldiers identical to one another because they don't and he doesn't. 
we are each of us unique individuals and he does treat us as such, making unique promises to us. But having said that, it seems to me that as I look at what God does in people's lives, there are recurring patterns, there are common principles that unfold as the promises make their way to fruition. Um, We each have a unique story, but we cover common ground in our journey. And with that as a kind of a basis, I'd like to suggest to you that promises tend to go through three broad stages. They go through the birth of a promise, they go through the death of a promise, they come through the supernatural resurrection of a promise. Without going into detail, you can see those three phases in the larger story of God's redemptive work in the earth through his people Israel. Beginning in Genesis 3 and then running through Genesis, God makes promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the other patriarchs, and then to the nation that he chose to bear that promise, the people of Israel. We know the story, Israel failed miserably to be the people that God called them to be, and finally they end up in exile in Babylon. They are expelled from their land of promise. And one might have imagined, as they did, that perhaps the promise of a coming Messiah had also been cancelled. They, they while they're in Babylon, the promises look dead in the water. There's, there's no possibility, there's no land, there's no temple. How could this possibly happen? Now, you know the story, a few of them ultimately return and they are reestablished in the land of promise, but they, they live for hundreds of years in subjection to foreign rulers and effectively, in many ways, still in exile. The last prophet Malachi comes, speaks, and then there's 400 years of complete, absolute, utter darkness and silence. Then out of the apparent death of the promise comes the supernatural resurrection, comes the Christmas Messiah as promised. And what I'm suggesting is that that threefold pattern of the birth, death, and supernatural resurrection of a pattern, uh, of a promise, will more than likely reoccur in in the personal promises that he has made to you. I the number of times I have wished that somebody might have sat with me in the early days of my ministry and explained this to me, because I had no idea. And I just thought that having been given a promise and a call into ministry, that, that all, would, all would be well. That since God had given the promise, it was as sure as, and that the graph would go upwards and to the right. Um, and it did anything but that. So I wanna walk through these three stages with you. First of all, of course, there's the birth of a promise where God speaks to people. Now we've talked about how God does that. He does that in many and very different ways. Sometimes it's just a word in the quiet of your heart. Other times it's a passage from scripture. It can be a prophetic word from somebody. It can be a dream. It can be any number of ways, but God grips your heart with a conviction that he he wants to do something in your life. He speaks to Abraham. And to Abraham and Sarah, he promises both a son and a land. Now, we aren't told how Abraham received that promise. We just said that the Lord spoke to him. Um, but, But Abraham moved in the conviction of that word. He spoke to Joseph in a series of dreams that promised this young man that he would rule over his brothers and over his father's household. 
He spoke to Moses and told him that he would be a deliverer. He would be the one who would bring his people out of 400 years of Egyptian bondage. Again, we aren't told how um, Moses was spoken to, just that he was. He spoke to David through Samuel the prophet and told him that he would be Israel's next king. So when God's word comes to our heart, whatever form it takes, it births in us faith and vision, a, a sense of divine enthusiasm. The word enthusiasm actually means in theos, in God. Suddenly there is something of incredible excitement in our heart that God's promise has, has birthed. And, and we dream about what that promise might look like, what form it might take as it unfolds. You know, as I said just a moment ago, in my naivety, I imagined when God put in my heart that, I, that, that He went, was calling me to ministry, that, uh, that the pathway to that promise would be like a graph going up and to the right. Now, I wasn't stupid enough to think that there wouldn't be some dips and some troughs, but I never anticipated that at one point in my life, the, the line would drop completely below the, hor the horizontal axis and disappear out of sight. No, nobody had warned me that, so I was expecting kind of it to go up and to the right. But um, that's not how promises unfold. Abraham imagined when God spoke to him about a son and a land. He must have dreamed of what that would look like. Joseph, of course, dreams about what it would look like to have his brothers come. And I'm not quite, I don't know what he thought, but, but I imagine that he, he thought that at one point in time, the brothers and father would come and, and acknowledge his business now. So they would say, this kid is a smart kid. We should make him CEO of, of, of you know, Jacob and Company, I, you know, of the family firm. This, this boy's bright. Moses sees himself leading people into freedom out from under Pharaoh's nose. David dreams of the transition of kingship from Saul to himself. Now what they and I and we often fail to consider is that having been given great and precious promises, God must now fashion and form in us a character that enables us to live successfully when those dreams, when those promises are fulfilled. Because success, the fulfillment, if you like, of the promise without character is a sure recipe for absolute disaster. Benjamin Franklin once observed that success has ruined many a man and great promises require great preparation. God is far too good and far too wise to fulfill the promises that he's given you without developing the character necessary to carry those promises both well and safely. The book of Proverbs says an inheritance, if you like, a promise quickly gained at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. I think it was Albert Einstein, who was obviously a very smart man in more ways than one, once observed that premature responsibility breeds superficiality. And God loves you and me way too much to allow us to be shallow, superficial, and ultimately dangerous because we have a promise, but no character that allows us to, stay, to sustain and carry that promise well. He loves you too much, actually, to give you unbroken success. And, I'm, and I can pretty much assure you that your graph is highly unlikely to simply go up and to the right. That's why at some point in that promise, in the journey and the unfolding of that promise, you'll come to a second stage, which I've called the death of a promise. 
It's been noted by many, and you've heard me say this, but between a promise and the fulfillment of the promise is usually a wilderness that looks exactly like the opposite of the promise. Okay? Between a promise and the fulfillment of a promise is a wilderness. And it looks exactly like the opposite of what you've been promised. In that stage, your dreams generally turn to nightmares. And, and you will doubt, you will be confused, you'll wonder if you even heard God in the beginning. And yet it's that stage, it's in that season that God is actually near, cutting, shaping, and fashioning a character that's capable of carrying that promise and in a manner that will honor the one who gave it. So Abraham has promised both a son and a land. That's the promise. Before the fulfillment of the promise is a wilderness where Sarah is barren and for decades, no child. Not only that, for decades, they traverse this land that has been promised them and they don't own one square foot of it. Then Joseph, who's promised a place of rule over his father's house and over his brothers, finds that those very same brothers rise up against him, throw him down in a pit and ultimately sell him into slavery in Egypt. Not exactly the fulfillment of the promise that he imagined. Moses tries his hand at delivering, only to fail miserably. Flees to the backside of a desert and spends the next 40 years shepherding a bunch of recalcitrant sheep. You can, see the, the, you can see the divine sense of humor in that because after a 40-year apprentice, apprenticeship, Moses is given a larger flock of even more stubborn sheep. <laughs> David is given a promise that he will be Israel's next king. His preparation is not a classroom and not a syllabus on how to be a king with chapters on international relationships, how to run a kingly household and run a nation's finances and a chapter thrown in on ballroom dancing for state occasions. Actually, according to one of his wives, he failed miserably the dancing course. His preparation, in fact, involved hiding in caves, dodging spears, feigning madness in foreign courts and leaning heavily on God simply to survive from day to day. And each one of those people who had great and precious promises went through an incredibly dark time where they must have wondered what was all that about. And I'm wondering, can you see a, prom a, a, rather a pattern emerging as, as promises unfold? I think it's in this season where the dreams turn to nightmare, where the promises seem a million miles away, that we engage in are encountered by what St. John of the Cross once called the dark night of the soul. You know, the ancient church fathers used a term and they described God as being deus absconditus. It's Latin, deus means God and absconditus comes, well from absconditus, we get our English word to abscond. Okay, and, and to abscond, if you check up in the dictionary, means to depart in a sudden and secretive manner. Here's a God who departs in a sudden and secretive manner, deus absconditus. And the church fathers spoke about how at times God seems to hide himself as if he's absconded, as if he is actually indifferent to the suffering, the very real suffering that we experience in these seasons. Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 15 talks about God being a God who hides himself. In Proverbs 25 verse two, God is a God who conceals things. God is wonderful at revealing, at illuminating, at coming and opening things up, but he's just as good as hi at hiding. He's just as good at closing things up, seeming like he's absconded. 
Job talked about this. He said, I seek him here. I seek him there. I cannot find him. I seek him in his workshop in the north, but cannot find him there, nor can I find him in the south. There too, he hides himself. And it's during that season when you feel like God has promised you something, but it seems like a million miles away that God actually is shaping, changing, working on our character. You know, it isn't hard to imagine that the biblical figures that I've mentioned, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, all had moments similar to the one that Job just described where they were saying, God, help me here. You are the one who gave me this promise. This seems like a million miles away. I'm battling with doubt. I'm battling with confusion. There's even a bit of anger there. What on earth is going on? Have you forsaken me? Have you changed your mind? So much for promises. If this is what it means to be chosen, then possibly you could think about choosing somebody else because this is just too hard. I don't know whether you've had those kinds of moments. You know what? Even Jesus experienced his deus absconditus moment as he hung in the darkness of the cross and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I suspect you will too. I suspect many of you have. Perhaps some of you are. Our journey of faith and our pathway toward his promises will not always be in the warm assurance of perpetually clear skies. They will include months, sometimes years, of being in circumstances that look like the exact opposite of what God has actually promised you. You know what? Abraham waited 25 years from the promise to the fulfillment of the promise, and a lot longer than that for the land. That was just for the son, part A. Joseph was 17 years of age when he had his calling dreams. He was 30 when Pharaoh called him and made him prime minister. That means that he spent 13 years, 13 of the prime years of his life in Egypt, firstly as a slave in Potiphar's household and then as a prisoner. That's a long time in a young man's life. As I said before, Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the desert. David was an adolescent or perhaps even a pre-adolescent when he was called and anointed by Samuel. He didn't come to Israel's throne until he was 30. That's a number of years. Some of you are saying, Lord, it's been five years. Lord, it's been seven years. Lord, it's been a decade. You know, there's a definitive pattern that seems to be emerging as you consider how promises go. And it's not just true of biblical people. You read, you read the stories, as I like to do, of lots and lots of pe- people, men and women of God, and you'll find they too had their seasons where it was for them deus absconditus. It was dark, it was confusing. Some of you may have read Mother Teresa's book, Come Be My Light, and she talked about a long season of incredible darkness where she said, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look but do not see, listen but do not hear. They don't know, they don't all live under the warm assurance of perpetually clear skies and friends, neither will you. It's an illusion. This season of God's apparent absence, actually, as I said, is a season where God is shaping and forming you to be the person that he's intended you be and that you be able to carry that promise that he's given you well in a way that honors him. It's in that season, actually, that he seems so far away that he's very, very close. Malachi chapter three, verse two says, for he is like a blazing fire refining precious metal, and he can bleach the dirtiest garments like a refiner of silver. He will sit and closely watch. He will sit and closely watch. 
He will purify the Levites, the ministers of God, refining them like gold or silver so that they will do their work for God with pure hearts. You know, when the heat's on and we're thinking, whoa, this is too hot in the kitchen. Get out. Where are you, God? Where are you? He sits and closely watches. Apparently, um, the, the goldsmith knows when the gold is completely refined, refined, when he can look into the molten gold and see his face reflected. When he doesn't see a clear reflection of his face, he knows there's still dross and he keeps the heat going. You know, the potter will sometimes pull a vessel out of the kiln and, and one of the ways that he knows it's ready is he gives it a flick on the side of the rim and if it goes, thud, he puts it back in. When it comes out and he goes, and it sings, he knows it's done. I don't know about you, but I've been many times, I think, pulled out and God is going, how are you doing? And I'm going, I'm not doing well. Food. This, is, this is not what you said. Food. Okay, no problem. <laughs> Maybe he's waiting for the day when he opens it up, pulls it out and goes, and I go, though the fig tree does not blossom. And, and all the people over 60 go, I remember that song. You might not remember it because it wasn't even close to the tune, but never mind. It's the definitive pattern. You know, John the Baptist, Jesus said the greatest in the, in the, uh, under the old covenant, one of the greatest of people. He's in prison. He, this, this isn't what he expected. He spent decades preparing. He's had six months of ministry and now he finds himself incarcerated and not sure that the one he has been heralding actually even is the one. So he sends some of his disciples to Jesus in Luke chapter seven and, and, and asks, are you the one? <clears throat> in effect, what he's saying is this isn't what I expected. This isn't unfolding as I imagined it would. What's, what on earth's going on? You know, Jesus' answer to the question wasn't an unequivocal, yes, I am. Why do you doubt, O ye of little faith? He says, Tell John what's happening. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor are, ha poor are having the gospel preached to them. You know, I can imagine when they came back to John, John saying, it was a simple question. Yes or no would suffice. Why so, why so um, cryptic? Verse 23 of that chapter in Luke, Jesus talks about John and then he says this, blessed is he who's not offended with me. Blessed is he who is not offended with me. Can I say to you in the midst of the confusion sometimes of what you face, blessed are you when you're not offended with him because it's easy to get offended with him. This isn't what you said. This isn't what I expected. I, you know, I know people who have thrown, it, thrown the promises overboard and, and um, you know, the, the, the secular landscape is filled with people not just that have been in churches but sometimes that have been in ministry and that ministry didn't turn out the way they'd hoped and they've decided they're out, they're gone. Blessed are you when you're not offended. Blessed are you when you hang in there, sometimes by the skin of your teeth. You know, the birth of a promised season is a time of faith, of vision, of expectation, of excitement. Um, you come to the second stage and quite frankly, virile, powerful faith just takes wings and seems to go. And talk of vision seems hollow. And it's here we cling to God's promises in hope of his faithfulness. Faith in the first season, hope in the second. 
David said this in Psalm 119, remember what you said to me, your servant. I hang on to those words for dear life. These words hold me up in bad time. Yes, your promises rejuvenate me. They, they give me hope. I'm, ha- I'm hanging in there. You know, Paul in 1 Thessalonians writes to the Thessalonians and said, we remember before God uh, and our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. Work comes by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance, the ability to endure is inspired by hope, which does not let go of his promises. <coughs> Excuse me. He's not absent in that season, though he feels like he is. You know what? Deus absconditus. He doesn't abscond. He withdraws sometimes the sense of his manifest presence, but he's there adjusting, shaping, molding, looking for his reflection in the molten metal, looking for a song of hope that rises from us instead of the thud of complaint. He allows things in his wisdom that he could stop with his power. Finally, in the fullness of time, God supernaturally resurrects the promise from the season of apparent death. God supernaturally raises the dream, the promise from the dead. Sarah has a son with Abraham. Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt and his brother and his fathers do bow down before him as God promised. Moses actually is used by God to deliver Israel. David becomes king as promised. Christmas comes, Messiah is born and the exile is ended. Stage one is marked by faith. Stage two is marked by hope. Stage three is manif- manifests love, the, the eternal qualities of 1 Corinthians 13. And by love, I don't mean feelings of ecstatic lovingness. By love, I simply mean that at that point in the promise, we realize that God has fulfilled these promises in order to bless and minister to other people through us. It's not all about us. Joseph realizes in that place where he has come to uh, rule over Egypt, that all that God has done in his life is for the people Israel's sake. It's for his family. And he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. All of this was about the saving of many lives. In many respects, the promises that God gives you are, are a means to an end. I'm not suggesting he uses you as a means to an end, but he wants to partner with you in the birth of his purposes in the earth. And so he gives you promises so that you'll partner with him so that you will be a blessing to people. All that God does is about flowing through us, not cul-de-sacking within us. You know, David saw that in 2 Samuel 5.12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom Israel's sake. Uh, if his kingdom for the sake of Israel, his people. This is about God doing something in you so that he can do something through you. That's what love's about. It's recognizing the blessing and purposes of God flow through us, not just simply to us. As I mentioned earlier, I so wish somebody had told me that in my early days. I'm sure most of you know my story, but Karen and I entered into ministry with great expectation and hope, and seven years later, um, it came to a crashing end when my pastor came into my room and said, I feel one of us should leave, and I feel called to stay. (laughs) And that's a quote. 
And that was the end of the dream. It came crashing down. And for some months afterwards, we contemplated leaving ministry and going back school teaching. And had it not been for just a miracle of God, I probably would be teaching somewhere now. Maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I would have given up. I don't know. Um, I wish somebody had explained to me that that's the way dreams go. But you know what? When people throw you down into a pit, you don't crash land there and think, well, hallelujah, second stage of dream, about to happen. <laughs> Do you? You go, ah, that hurt? What was that about? But, but maybe just some clarity for you this, this morning, you know. When, when that happened, Karen and I went on holiday. We, we managed to eke out enough money to go away. And, and I'll never forget this. We actually came up from way down the Rangitiki and we went to Whangamataa. And we were walking down the main street of Whangamataa and there was a, a bookshop. And in the bookshop, it had a poster. And I'm sure some of you have seen this poster. But it was a little tiny kitten hanging with one claw onto a rope as a rope dangling down and this thing was hanging by one claw just sort of swinging and, and the, um, the, the caption underneath was hang in there baby and you know what I felt like the Lord said that's you that's for you now I, I thought I uh, can't be you know I mean I'm from a, a good AOG background when people prophesied they prophesied in King James and I never anybody I never ever heard anybody say yea thus saith the Lord hang in there baby <laughs> you know so I thought I, I, it can't be but I knew it was, I knew it was. And so for some time, we hung in there, baby. And God did something, he turned something around. And uh, we came to see something of what God had promised us. You know, the, the, the incredibly interesting thing, and I'll finish with this, so the musicians, if you wouldn't mind making your way up. You, you can have various promises. Sometimes God's promised you things concerning maybe health or finances or family. And in one part of that promise, maybe, maybe for example, finances, you see the blessing of God. You see that God has actually done what he promised. And at the very same time, the thing that he spoke to you about your family looks a million miles away. And you live in the tension of seeing some things happen and not other things happen. But, but that's, that's the pattern. The dreams go through that. And, and what I'm, I guess, trying to say to you today is if you're sitting here this morning and, and you're, you're, you're not in stage one, you know, there'll be some of you who are in stage one and you're thinking, this is a load of codswallop. I mean, the guy completely lacks faith. You know, I plan to go up and to the right. And that's where God's taken me. Well, you remind me of the people who wear the T-shirt. You know, I plan to live forever. And on the back, it says, so good, so far. So far, so, so far, so good, brother. You know, God bless you. Go for it. Up and to the right. But just remember this message in three years' time. There are others of you who are saying, mate, I wish, I wish like you somebody had told me this because this has been the most painful season of my life as things that I felt God has, had given me by way of promise, he just seemed to pluck and, and God seemed so far from me. You know, I, I, I read the Bible and try and hear his voice and it's like eating dry wheat bicks and trying to whistle. It's just nothing. It's just like he's absconded and he's now in Bogota, Colombia. And, and my prayers go up, hit the roof, hit the ground. Can I just suggest to you he's not as far, as, far away as you think? that actually he's leaning over 
looking for, looking for his reflection. He's leaning over, waiting instead of the thud of complaint that there might be. Hallelujah, anyhow. You know, something happened to us just a week or so ago where something that I was really hoping for look, looks like it could be dead in the water. And, um, and I, was, I was reminded of an old, old song. Um, and this, this will date me even worse than the fig tree song. But the words go, hallelujah, anyhow. Hallelujah, anyhow. When trouble comes and life looks like it's gonna get you down, hallelujah, anyhow. And I'm not one of those people that just say to trouble, you know, oh, hallelujah, seven times and it'll go away. But I just felt like the Lord said, sing to it, sing to it. And so badly, I tried to sing that song a few times. Couldn't remember all the words, but just started to go back over it. And Lord, you can, you can do what you've spoken and I will trust. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.